On this week's prequel episode, we follow up on our Devil Wears Prada listener polls and preview 2001 A Space Eyes. Hello and welcome back to another episode of This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. We have quite a bit to preview for 2001 and we got a little bit of feedback to get to, so we're going to get right into our patron shoutouts. I put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons, that's why. No new patrons this week, but we do have our Academy Award winners, and they are Vic Dangerously, Matilde, Steve from Arizona, Paul, Kat Insminger, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Gratch, just Gratch. Shelby says Run Rabbit Run is out now. That darn skag, V Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all very much. Uh, Run Rabbit Run, which Shelby mentioned in her name for the uh, shout out, is an anthology of Drabble horror stories that Shelby is featured in. I think they're all related to rabbits, maybe in some way. It's like it was like Easter themed or something, but it's oh, like. was it? I think. It looked okay. like it. I, I didn't mostly... realize it was Easter themed. I thought it was just like a reference to the There's a rabbit song. on the cover. I may be incorrect <laughs> about that. It may not be. I looked at it, but I didn't. I think it's rabbit themed mm. or Easter cool. themed, maybe. Um, but anyways, if, and if you don't know, Drabble is a specific type of short story that is exactly 100 words, hmm. which I was unaware of. Yeah, I don't think I, I feel like I had, a, there was a different word for that. When I, when I did, well, sorry, school. the first thing when I looked up, because I was, was like, it? I don't know what a drabble, because I looked at yeah. the, the thing and it said drabble short, like drabble horror stories. I was like, what the heck is drabble? And I looked it up. And according to the first thing I found, it said a hundred word short story, but huh. like exactly a hundred word short story. But that maybe that is a different thing. Maybe I would, the source I found was incorrect, but. I think I'm thinking of micro fiction, but that might be something different too. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, supposedly a drabble is a hundred word story. So anyways, go check out Run, Rabbit Run. It's available on, I believe, Kindle and everything. It looked like it was maybe free, potentially. It looked like it was zero dollars to download, at least on it was Prime on Kindle. It was. Oh, yeah. yeah so yeah, maybe it was yeah. included in like a Prime subscription. I don't know. Uh, it was zero dollars when I looked at it. So <laughs> your mileage may vary depending on <laughs> other things. So all right, let's go ahead and see what everybody had to say about The Devil Wears Prada. Yeah, well... You know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. On Patreon, we had five votes for the movie, zero for the book, and one listener who couldn't decide. A handful of fish bones said, woof, this was not a good book to listen to while having a terrible time at work. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, would be I rough. I agree wholeheartedly with Katie's conclusions on the book and the movie, and it was cathartic to hear Brian struggle with the frustrating parts of the movie. Nice. I experienced the same spiral upon watching it. Oh, I'm glad I wasn't alone. <laughs> Listening to the book under the conditions that I did, it does strike me that having a Miranda-like boss is a decent analogy for struggling with pathological perfectionism and obsessive compulsive behaviors. Hmm. Under this analogy, a single person would be the boss and the worker. The mental tasks your brain sets are at times impossible. You run yourself ragged attempting to meet pointless goals only for achievements to be immediately undermined. 
unchecked, you self-isolate because these tasks become all-consuming and it's impossible to make other people understand how important it feels in the moment, even when you know you're operating destructively. Obviously, that's not what the book was about, but something in the dissonance Andy experiences when trying to explain what her job is like to outsiders spoke to me. Or maybe I haven't just gotten enough sleep. No, I think that. Uh, yeah, great, I think that makes yeah, perfect I think sense. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's a great um, sort of, you know, analogy to pull out of the story. Uh, I, yeah, definitely wasn't what they were intending. I mean, it doesn't seem. But um, <laughs> I, like I said, I think it, I think it fits very well. Mm-hmm. And I could definitely see how you would, um, you know, how that would be something that you could identify with within the story for sure. Yeah, for sure. Super cool. Um, Steve from Arizona said, I didn't read the book and I have no real intention to. And it was funny how I even watched this movie trying to make some extra cash. I donated plasma for a while on one particular day. I was hooked up to the slowest machine and thus was able to watch this entire train wreck of a film. Comedian extraordinaire Tim Heidecker was the lead character in a movie called The Comedy. None of the characters were likable, admirable, or even redeemable, and in the end, no one evolves or becomes actualized. After watching The Comedy and then this movie, I knew where they got the inspiration. I absolutely hated everyone in this movie, and I especially despised the naive and ridiculous Andy character, but this might be due to my annoyance of Anne Hathaway. Now, of course, the so-called philosophy of fashion is interesting, for I have reached the age where I do my shopping at Costco, but it's more because I might as well and it's cheap rather than me sticking it to the man and being a part of some fashion paradigm. Anyway, enough of my takes. <laughs> well, uh, I, you know, that, you know, fair enough. Your mileage may vary. I don't agree with most of that. I, I don't think it was a train wreck of a film. Uh, and I, 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 I can understand finding, I, I, I identify at least a little bit. Part of my frustration was the fact that I, I found everybody obnoxious in some way to mm-hmm. some capacity and found what they were doing, you know, like, right. oh, you're being I, an idiot in some way. I do think that's the point. Yes. That, <laughs> I, that's what I was getting to. That is the point though. And again, I think it helped, it helped me at least, um, having the perspective of having watched Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and knowing that's how the writer is intentionally writes characters that way that yeah. are where everybody does stuff that you're like, what are you doing, you idiot? Because that's how people act in real life. Uh, not, you know, not everybody, but it's very common for you to have a lot of people in your life where they do stuff that you're just like, why would you do that? And, and you know, and people don't always act perfectly logical and stuff like that or, or, or you know, behave exactly the way that makes sense from a writing perspective. So I, I think it mm-hmm. again, I, I in general, I like it. And I, I don't know how you could be annoyed with Anne Hathaway. I, whatever. I, uh, that's a, do you remember, though? Did and, she and do I'm, something? No, and I'm, <laughs> but I, well, I don't know, actually. Um, not recently, at least, yeah. I don't think. But and I'm, I'm not saying that this is Steve's perspective. But do you remember like shortly after she was in Les Mis, it was really like in vogue to hate Anne Hathaway. I don't like remember everybody that. hated Anne Hathaway for like a chunk of time. I, I, there. I must have missed out on the yeah. hating Anne Hathaway. That, well, that paradigm. and that that <laughs> happened. That happens to every it girl. Yeah, it does it's for sure. The, yeah, if they if they love you, eventually they will love to hate you. Yeah, I, I except for the ones that die young and beautiful. Like because I remember every hit, every hit girl. I do definitely remember that with like Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, and you know, but yeah, for some and obviously like Lindsay Lohan. Like I, yeah, it definitely everybody tends to go through that phase. I just don't remember it for Anne Hathaway. I, again, I don't know. I don't know anything about Anne Hathaway, but she's delightful in every movie I've seen. Her, <laughs> so I don't, I don't have a problem with her. I think she's a very good actress. Again, from everything I've seen. 
Our last comment on Patreon was from Charlene, who said, I might have had an intention of reading this at one point, but no more. I've read a couple books where the author is writing out a fantasy version of their own life, like an alternate universe fan fiction, and find it super annoying. Maybe because it's the kind of writing I did as a teen. Just, you know, without the intention of sharing it with anyone, let alone publishing it. Were you here for our Fifty Shades series last <laughs> summer, Charlene? Because, yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> and, and, you know, I will say with this one, that aspect of it didn't get really bad and noticeable for me until, like, the last two chapters. Yeah. So you could honestly, you could, like, read up through chapter 17 and then put the book down and <laughs> pretend the last few chapters never happened. Fair enough. There you go. If you really want to read it. <laughs> Over on Facebook, we had three votes for the movie and two for the book. Adam said, I'm sure it's astronomically cheaper here than in New York City, but I was a cab driver in Mason, the suburbs of North Cincinnati, for about six years, and we had a client who had us drive her to work and back home, and it was $110 round trip every fuck? day. What the fuck? It was worth it and affordable to her, but I don't know how the people at the magazine could afford it in the movie. So, okay. I, just one, I don't know. We don't know if those people worked at the magazine. We right. don't actually yes. know the what those at the other beginning, women we, did. We don't know. Also, I don't remember if we talked about this specifically in the episode or not. I might have mentioned it. But Andy does, like, it's mentioned frequently throughout the book that she, like, charges all kinds of stuff yeah, on her company card. Yeah, you did mention at least, like, the giving food to the homeless people. Yeah, and, stuff, and she does that, with, like, at least a handful of times we see her do that with cab rides oh, as okay. well. Yeah, so, yeah, I guess, yeah, I don't, yeah, but 110, okay, so, but going back to your story, just, that's nuts. That's nuts. I don't understand. Surely it would be cheaper to have a driver, right? Like, I I would almost fathom that it could not be more expensive to hire a driver than to spend uh, $600 a week. I don't know what the going rate is for a personal driver. That might be cheaper than having a personal driver. I guess maybe it wouldn't be. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess if you if you just don't have a car or don't want to drive and you have. Yeah, I mean, because $600 a week, you know, it's obviously a ton. It's an insane amount of money, but. If you if you're working in downtown Cincinnati at some right big... and you maybe you don't have a car or maybe you would have to pay to park it downtown every day. Yeah. Maybe there's not public transportation. Also could be covered by the company because like, you know, I know I mean, I've had family. I've had family members in the past who would literally fly to work every week. They mm-hmm. would literally fly from St. Louis down to like Texas and work the week and then fly back on Friday. And like, mm. so literally two flights a week. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure that's in the ballpark of $500, $600 a week, something right. like that. So I think for certain, for certain people, it's, yeah, it's just built in, but it's just, it's, it's so utterly insane. I, I, I can't, a day. I cannot imagine having the kind of income that allowed me to drop a hundred dollars a day on transportation and Wild. still have money left to like eat. There's some people that are but. Just- yeah. And she's probably not Good even that for wealthy. Her. Like that person is probably I mean, they're living outside Cincinnati. They're not that wealthy. <laughs> like not, you know, no hate to Cincinnati. It's a nice city, but like, you know, they're not somebody living in downtown Manhattan. They're right. you know, they're living yeah. in the suburbs of Cincinnati. It's that person's probably not a multimillionaire, I would imagine. Uh, yeah. 
And our other comment on Facebook was from Warren, who said, Hi, great episode as usual. Thank you, Warren. Thank you. I haven't Are you seen. A new? I don't think I've seen Warren. Um, I, Warren is recent-ishly followed oh. us. I think. Well, thank you. I think I'm just saying I don't remember ever on a feedback. I don't remember ever seeing a Warren. So yeah, I don't. I don't know if they've left a lot of comments, but um, yeah, I think uh, recently started following us. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Warren went on to say, "I haven't seen either the film or read the book, but from your descriptions, I'd pick the film, though neither sound quite like my cup of tea." Though now I'll be more inclined to check the movie out if I stumble across it. I think my only thought that I disagree with is us moving away from auteur theory. I think the populace still very much follows this idea. Elon Musk springs to mind for all the worst connotations of it. And in the film world, I think it can very much apply. Otherwise, we wouldn't have favorite directors, right? A Spielberg movie is very different to a David Lynch or Guillermo del Toro movie. While we know lots of talented people work on the movies, their talents and visions line up to what the director wants. There's way more nuance to this, but I do think auteur theory is valid, at least for films and possibly video games. I guess books can't go without it. I'm not sure how it applies there. Anyway, that part I do agree is on at least in our entertainment, we've become more critical of those who use it as an excuse for bad behavior, which is great. As a director myself, it has always baffled me why directors use fear and manipulation to get performances out of their actors instead of making things fun and just asking them to act. I don't know if that made any sense. Great episode, huge fan of the show, and can't wait for the next one. Thank you. And I think I actually uh, mostly agree with everything you said. Um, uh, I definitely think I, I think your first point is uh, completely true, that when I was speaking about how we're moving away from auteur theory as a framework for understanding media when i say we i don't i didn't necessarily mean as a society as a whole mm-hmm. i meant more like not that we're like critics quote unquote but it, within the critical bubble of like people who are analyzing media talking about it yeah especially in more like left-leaning media analysis circles um people that are looking at media through you know different lenses and stuff like that to critically analyze it i think that's the 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 avenue or the the when i was saying we that's more so what i was talking about again as opposed to the general public because i think you're right like in general people do very much see the world like as a large society as a whole still very much sees the world through a great man theory or auteur kind of um idea and again i think elon musk is a great example of that people you know huge populations of people you know a portion of society attributes all of the you know successes of every company he works at or you know is involved in to him when yeah. very little to do with any of that stuff and it's very clear that he's an idiot um <laughs> i mean i like literally just the man is a fucking he's probably smart about something but is very clearly an idiot about a lot of things but i uh, getting into your more specifically your your kind of discussion about movies i i don't disagree i do agree that in general movies might be the place where it is the most true still because the director's vision does so clearly um holds sway in a film like you said there mm-hmm. is a reason that when you see a del toro movie you know it's a del toro movie or a lynch movie you know it's a lynch movie etc um that's definitely the case um i still think that it's a good idea to move away from or to to, to broaden that out and also pay attention to the cinematographers those directors tend to work with yeah there's a reason the movies look the way they do yes the director has a say in that but the cinematographer has a huge say in that huge say in that and often those directors work with the same cinematographer handful of Mm -hmm. cinematographers or even the same one cinematographer over and over and over again 
Um, and you can even see a difference from movie to movie when they change a lot of times. And it goes even broader than that. But that's, you know, one example for sure. And, you know, same thing for like costumes. Like, yes, you can probably a lot of times tell from the costuming in, in like a Del Toro movie or whatever. Oh, that's, you know, his style. But a lot of times it's because he's working with the same costume people all the time. Yeah. And they know what he likes. And and, and again, I, I think it's just a, I think it's a good idea. And I, I don't think Warren disagrees with this based on what they're saying to just broaden the scope of how we discuss the contributions to a creative property, because it is, I think, a little reductive. Um, while not incorrect to say that it is one person's vision, it's reductive to to and and dismissive of all of the work by all everybody else that goes into a property or film or whatever um, to kind of solely attribute it to them. And I'm as guilty of it as anybody. But uh, I think video games is another good example where you can definitely tell like a Neil Druckmann. Uh, he did Last of Us and a handful, mm-hmm. but, but like, you know, there there are people like that within the, the guys, the people who run, you know, or are the um, studio heads or whatever that are like in charge of a game or whatever. You can often tell one person. Uh, another one's the guy who does all the terrible uh, like heavy ring. I can't remember that guy's name, but there's some other guy who does these like very like philosophical, like navel gazy garbage. I've heard they're bad. <laughs> I've never actually played them. Um, they're like very like cinematic uh-huh. games. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name for the life of me. Kyle hates him. But um, anyways, uh, so that's another one. And in books, I think it's literally pretty much, yeah, it's the person writing it. Is, yeah, yeah, I mean, the the editor can have yes. some kind of influence. But, but generally beyond speaking, that, it's it's yeah. the author's vision. I think books are the one where it's, it's, it's easiest to like solely be like, yeah, this person did yeah. that. Or maybe like music, if it's like a solo artist who literally writes all the song, you know, does it all themselves. Uh, but yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I think it, auteur theory still applies and there's still a useful framework to assess movies. It's just that we should, you know, expand beyond that, at least to some extent. And and definitely your last point about um, not use not allowing uh, our framework of our auteur theory to excuse bad behavior or yeah. allow directors to like be assholes because, you know, they're doing great stuff, which is kind of what this whole movie and where this all sprung from is the fact that in the movie, Miranda is just the worst. And, you mm-hmm. know, but she's it's given a pass, at least kind of by the movie, because she's creating this, you know, she's she has to be to create this amazing yeah. art. And and Warren's last point is very uh, well noted that you don't have to like you just don't like there's plenty of direct like I, I have never heard anybody say that Del Toro sucks to work with and is like an yeah. asshole. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, his movies are as good as anybody. So I don't <laughs> like I, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, it's I, I, I just don't buy the idea um, that, you you know, that you would have to be a jerk or, or create weird um, conditions on set to, to create good cinema because you just don't it's we've seen it enough times now that it's it's not required you can get good performances while doing that but it's not required and you shouldn't because it makes you an asshole all right uh, <laughs> but thank you for your input warren that was very interesting um over on twitter we had four votes for the movie and one for the book uh, april at mansky said great episode i enjoyed revisiting the movie thoughts does Andy just get free designer clothes when working at Runway? Um, kind of. Yes, it seems yeah. like. It's, it does basically. seem like um, a, a little more perspective from the book. A lot of the stuff she's like technically borrowing yeah, like... from the closet, but because of the way that like the fashion cycle and seasons move, a lot of the stuff like, she, it, yeah, nobody's going to miss those, it. Yeah. Um, and then there's other um, like other things like, uh, there's a bit in the book about how 
like every season Miranda just like gets rid of all her clothes and gets an entirely new wardrobe and Andy like literally like just takes that stuff and sells it. Yeah, makes sense. I would. Yeah. yeah like absolutely. why wouldn't you? <laughs> why wouldn't you? <laughs> Um, and then April's other thought was, I wouldn't think that millionaires, Miranda, drink Starbucks, but what do I know? I mean, millionaires I, like, can have everybody, club taste. Everybody just like, drinks yeah. Starbucks. Also, this was still, <laughs> another thing is that this was like 2006. We were still right in the early well, the, bubble. The book was even earlier, too. That was 2003. Yeah. So we're still right in that bubble where Starbucks was just blowing up. Like, it yeah. had been around, but yeah. like where it was like taking over <laughs> the right. world of coffee. But it, it wasn't like... It wasn't... The institution that it is yeah, now. That people like roll their eyes at now. Like, yeah. like, and then especially like coffee snobs and stuff. Like, at the time, it was still like up and coming enough, I feel mm-hmm. like, that it was like cool to drink Starbucks. Whereas now it's not like who, nobody cares. Like, it's yeah. just you drink it or you don't, but like nobody really cares. Whereas then I think it was still like trendy enough that it was right no i think you're right yeah it was also like across the street from their work building in the book so convenient i suppose and our our other comment on twitter was from kelly napier uh, our patron who requested the devil wears prada Mm -hmm. and kelly said okay first off people from texas are not southerners did somebody say that I I think I offhand referred to the people, the rich people in the book who are from Texas as Southern. Yeah, it is different. Um, I I, I mean, there's I said I think I said they were Southern, which is still technically true. Yes. Although they're not Southerners in the same way that like people from Arkansas or Mississippi or Georgia Georgia are are Southerners. All very distinct flavors of being from the South. Uh, Nuance. Um, Anyway, Kelly went on to say. They're Texans. Trust me, I know, because I live here, and one thing Texans love to draw attention to <laughs> is, is how Texas they are. I know that from all the way in Missouri. <laughs> yeah, so I, I've met enough Texans to be aware of that. <laughs> Never having... met a Texan who didn't let me know they were from Texas. I think I've driven through Texas like <laughs> once, but uh, yeah, no, I, yeah, yes, I'm aware. Um, moving on, I enjoyed the book and I enjoyed the movie. Neither is perfect, and there are truly dislikable characters in both. But I'm giving this one to the movie because movie Miranda actually has depth to her character, as opposed to book Miranda, who's just a caricature of a bad person, whose unreasonable requests just become laughable as they get more and more constant and more and more ridiculous. Also, this movie is the apex of the women getting ready for the day montage that we saw so often in the early 2000s. It's cheesy, but I love it. Plus, this probably trumps everything else. Meryl Streep is a capital Q queen, so her side wins (laughs) by default. There you go. That's all. Yeah. No, and she was very good. Absolutely. She she made... Uh, absolutely made Miranda's character interesting and what, and you know, she's the reason that that character is so good mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, I'm sure somebody else could have done it. Like I'm sure there were probably a handful of people that could have done it, but absolutely. She destroyed that role and is, is the reason that the movie is as, um, yeah, I, I think without her performance in that movie, this movie probably would not be as fondly remembered as it yeah, is for sure. Oh, uh, we didn't have any comments on Instagram, but we did have nine votes for the movie and one for the book. Okay. Uh, and then on Goodreads, we our had Goodreads yeah, our, yes, our, our single Goodreads we commentator. Um, 
We had, so we had one vote for the movie, zero for the book on Goodreads. Uh, and our comment was from Miko, who said, I tried to read the book, but gave up a little over a third of the way through. I should have known that realistic modern day chiclet about the fashion industry would combine too many things I dislike, but I still thought to give it a shot. If I'm to read about a hostile workspace or how bad the fashion industry is, I'd prefer it to be nonfiction. With the movie, I again found myself agreeing with basically everything Brian brought up. The cerulean sweater speech feels empty to me, too. I agree that one cannot be unaffected by trends in the modern world, but that still doesn't do anything to explain why one should care. Knowing why the shirt is the color it is doesn't factor into the choice to buy it if one doesn't yes. care about fashion. That's what I was trying to say, yes. <laughs> and it's not an argument, <laughs> just an observation that could be made about nearly every industry. Should I care about my sandwich fillings beyond my tastes because some famous chef started a food trend that's trickled down to supermarkets? A tiny thing I found amusing. I know the dress-up scene is a trope and more about Andy's fashion sense than looks, but I still found it funny how shocked Emily is. Anne Hathaway can look good? Who would have known? Seeing that I couldn't finish the book, giving this one to the movie is pretty self-evident. Yeah, I do think it's interesting. Like, I... I, I... The thing that I think is interesting about the cerulean sweater thing and and your by uh, extension your example about the you know a famous chef starting some food trend that trickles down to supermarkets I think it's an interesting thing to think about and to know like I, I like I feel like I would be like oh that's interesting if somebody told me like mm -hmm. oh you know why you put mayonnaise on your sandwich it's because Jacques Pepin and whatever <laughs> like okay like that's, that's interesting. An interesting factoid yeah I don't File know how that it affects away. my life really yeah like, you know like I mean I guess it you know and because again it's like well I, I put mayonnaise on a sandwich because I think it tastes good and I like it like I get that maybe the first time I did it was because my dad did it because his dad did it because he saw Jacques Pepin do it or something like okay maybe <laughs> like I get I guess I get that it's just yeah yeah, it is. I'm glad somebody else agrees with me. It's, it's just, it just rings a little hollow in a way that it was hard to put my finger on, but I think Miko did a good job. So, and yeah, it, it is, it's, you know, it is one of those things. It's a classic movie thing where it's like, well, this obviously beautiful person yeah. is still beautiful yeah. and just in a different way. Okay. It's, it's, it is, it is kind of just built into the trope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, how do we final uh, the final vote count breakdown? Our final winner, uh, to probably no one's surprise, was the movie with 22 votes to the book's four, plus one listener who couldn't decide. There you go. Movie crushed it this week. Which, uh, absolutely creamed the book. Not surprised by. All right, we do not have a learning things segment this week because we have quite a few facts about the film and quite a bit to talk about, so let's get right into our book facts first and talk about Arthur C. Clarke's The Sentinel. Dave, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, not at all. I've wondered whether you might be having some second thoughts about the mission. How do you mean? Rumors about something being dug up on the moon. I never gave these stories much credence, but particularly in view of some of the other things that have happened, I find them difficult to put out of my mind. All right, 
I just have a couple little factoids here because this is a short story. So there's not yes. a lot of information out there about it. Um, but The Sentinel is a science fiction short story by British author Arthur C. Clarke. It was written in 1948 and first published in 1951 under the title Sentinel of Eternity. Um, it was written originally for a BBC like writing competition um, in which it failed to place. Um, but despite that initial failure, uh, the story did change the course of Clark's career um, when it was adapted into 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm -hmm. um, and I say adapted as more of an expansion as, have... as we often see with like children's books and short stories and things. It's more of an expansion. Um, I have more notes about this. Yeah. Well. Uh, so Clark and the director, uh, Stanley Kubrick, uh, modified it and fused the story with like other ideas that they had. They drew some elements from other um, some other of Clark's works, uh, most notably Encounter in the Dawn and Rescue Party. Um, and Clark actually had expressed Im um, impatience is how it, Wikipedia put it, hmm. um, with the common description of uh, the story um, being, like, adapted, like, being movie being as, adapted as an adaption. Yes. Yeah. Um, saying, quote, I am continually annoyed by careless references to The Sentinel as the story on which 2001 is based. It bears about as much relation to the movie as an acorn to the resultant full-grown oak. Hmm. Um, and I, I I see what he's saying. I think I would make that argument about a lot of the shorter pieces yeah, that we've it's, done it's on this show. a pretty classic short story adaptation. Yeah. Um, now, Clark did also write um, a 1968 novel, 2001, A Space Odyssey, that more closely follows the movie. However, that novel was written concurrently alongside the movie, and Kubrick also worked on it as well. Um, I have more notes about this as well. And, and then the reason that we're not covering the novel is because I consider that a project of that nature to be different than an adaptation. This one's complicated. We'll talk more yeah. about it in a second in my segment. It is it's tough. We'll talk about it. We'll get into it when we get into my segment, uh, which we're going to do right now and talk about 2001 A Space Odyssey. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What are you talking about, Hal? This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. 2001 A Space Odyssey is a 1968 film directed by Stanley Kubrick, known for The Shining, Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket, Barry Lyndon, Dr. Strangelove, a handful of other movies and written by both Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. The film stars Keir Dulia, Gary Lockwood, William Sylvester, Daniel Richter, Leonard Rossiter, Margaret Tezak, Robert Beatty, Sean Sullivan, and Douglas Rain as the voice of HAL 9000. It has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, an 84% on Metacritic, and an 8.3 out of 10 on IMDb, which puts it at number 90 on the top movie list on IMDb. The film won one Academy Award for Best Effects. Uh, special, vis special visual effects was the cat categories were slightly different back then. Mm -hmm. They kind of have tweaked them over the years with the advent of CG and other stuff. But it just won for Best Effects and was nominated for three other Oscars, including Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Art Direction. 
The film made $146 million against a budget of $10.5 million, which seems like a tiny budget already, but then you'll find out that it was $4.5 million over budget and 16 months behind schedule. So it originally had a budget of $6 million. Mm. Uh, but I'm sure they were fine with the after the returns yeah came was, in, i'm sure everybody was fine with yeah, it <laughs> I, i'm sure during the process that 4.5 million over they were not psyched about but once the movie made 146 million they were like okay fine and and then a bunch more in since yeah then. yeah <laughs> in other ways but that's just literally the theatrical run so after dr strange love stanley kubrick decided that he wanted his next film to be about uh, extraterrestrial life and, and resolved that he would make, quote, the proverbial good science fiction movie, end quote, because Kubrick doesn't like things. So he didn't probably didn't like any science fiction movies <laughs> up until that point. Uh, so he really wanted a, a more realistic portrayal of space travel uh, than the other sci fi movies and stuff that were uh, existed at the time and TV shows and all that sort of stuff was much more pulpy, much more, mm -hmm. you know comic -y, much more ridiculous. Uh, and he wanted a more grounded, realistic sci fi story. So for uh, concept art, he actually used illustrators that he felt had a really scientifically real feel to their art style, uh, specifically included a guy named Chesley Bonestall, uh, who did a bunch of space illustrations all through the 50s and 60s, and I believe in maybe even earlier than that. Um, and his illustrations are often cited as being hugely inspirational to the American space program hmm. back in the day. Got uh, a hell a of a name, of, too. Yes, Chesley Bonestall is a great name. Um, so he... Uh, he Kubrick hired him for some of the concept art. And again, a lot of his art, even before this, uh, was stuff that inspired a lot of the people who worked at NASA and stuff like that. Um, Kubrick was also inspired by a 1964 World's Fair video called To the Moon and Beyond, which I could not find anywhere uh, on the Internet. Apparently, it's maybe lost media. It's tough to say. Mm. Uh, and a 1960 Canadian documentary called Universe, which is on YouTube. I have a link to it, which we can share on social media. It's really interesting. It's like 30 minutes long, but you can definitely see where that Kubrick was pulling inspiration from this. And an interesting fun fact about that is that that documentary uh, it was produced by like the Canadian National Film Board or whatever. That documentary was voiced or was narrated by Douglas Rain, mm. who is uh how 9000 so literally kubrick saw it yeah. like the via or like to the narrator and got him to do well i bet that gives that documentary kind of a different flavor in uh it's a different performance retrospect i didn't want yes i didn't watch the whole documentary <laughs> i watched a few minutes of it just to kind of see yeah. what it was like um and you can tell it's the same guy but he's not doing the how mm -hmm. 9000 voice He's definitely doing a voice in the movie that is not like his normal narration voice but you can still hear the similarities for sure Kubrick initially just wanted to make a sci-fi movie, did not know what it was going to be, didn't really have any ideas or didn't have any concrete ideas. But he, so he decided he needed somebody to collaborate with from the sci-fi community because that was not his area of expertise. And one of his friends suggested that he talk to Arthur C. Clarke. For some reason, uh, Kubrick thought that Arthur C. Clarke was like a recluse, uh, saying, quote, he thought he was a recluse, a nut who lives in a tree, end quote. Um, but he, he asked his friend, okay, go ahead, send him a, a cable. This is back when they sent cables <laughs> apparently, uh, about working on a film together. And Clark, uh, apparently responded that he was quote, fright, frightfully interested in working with that enfant terrible. And then added, which means, uh, uh, it's like French for basically like a, an obnoxious, like, 
I I looked it up and now I can't remember. It's got a very it's like it's one of those phrases that has like a very specific meaning that we don't really use mm-hmm. um in common uh, a person whose unconventional or controversial behavior or idea shock, embarrass, or annoy others. It's a French uh, expression traditionally referring to a child who is terrifyingly candid uh, by saying embarrassing things to parents or others. Um, but it's kind of moved on to be like people who are like eccentric geniuses mm-hmm. who like, you know, push the limits of art or whatever. So mm-hmm. it's kind of the idea. Uh, and it, uh, yeah, so. Uh, frightfully interested in working with that enfant terrible, and he added, quote, what makes Kubrick think I'm a recluse, end quote. Uh, and Clark would go on to keep a diary throughout his entire involvement in 2001, and you can actually read uh, excerpts from that, which were published in a 1972 book called The Lost Worlds of 2001. So you can actually see what Clark thought about working on the film as they were working on it. Uh, so Clark offered Kubrick six short stories to pick from to use for his movie, and within a month of them working together, Kubrick had selected the Sentinel uh, to be the source material. Uh, and then the two of them spent the rest of the year brainstorming and researching together to flesh out the story. Because like you said, it's a short story. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, Encounter in the Dawn mm-hmm. uh, was another piece, another short story that was in, um, used in the movie. And specifically, it's the inspiration for the Dawn of Man sequence in the film. Um, but then there's other ones that you mentioned that they kind of pulled from, as well as other yeah, stuff other yeah, other stuff, other things. Yeah. Uh, then in, in 1965, Kubrick issued, issued a press release announcing the film as quote or uh, title announcing the film's title as Journey Beyond the Stars. Uh, other titles that they had considered were Universe, which was the name of the documentary, Tunnel to the Stars, and Planet Fall. Uh, they didn't end up using any of those. And then a few months after that press release went out, Kubrick would eventually select 2001 A Space Odyssey as the title, which Clark says that was completely Kubrick's creation. He didn't have any input on the title. Um, And Kubrick really wanted to set the film apart from the monsters and sex type of science fiction that was like (laughs) existed at the time, which was like women and, you know. Right. Yeah. 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 And and monster. Yeah. He wanted his his headier sci fi. So he felt 2001 A Space Odyssey lent a a more more gravitas Uh to it. He also used the Odyssey as the model uh, because of its literary merit and because. He said, quote, it occurred to us that for the Greeks, the vast stretches of the sea must have had the same sort of mystery and remoteness that space has for our generation, end quote. So makes sense. Fair. Yeah, totally makes sense. As you mentioned, there is a novel that was written in parallel with the film. There are a number of differences between the book and the movie. uh, And Kubrick said about the movie, quote, the novel, for example, attempts to explain things much more explicitly than the film does, which is inevitable in a verbal medium. The novel came about after we did a 130-page prose treatment of the film at the very outset. Arthur took all the existing material, plus an impression of some of the rushes, and wrote the... Uh, um, plus an impression of some of the rushes. I don't know what that means. This is a quote, so I don't know what rushes means. I don't know what means. that means either. Uh, and wrote the novel. As a result, there's a difference between the novel and the film. I think that the divergences between the two works are interesting. And as you said, or as I mentioned, Clark opted for like clear explanations in Mm -hmm. the book than the movie gives you uh, of of like the monolith of the Stargate. All of those things are left very vague and open ended in the movie um, and and left very cryptic because there's not dialogue and stuff. But Clark explains that stuff a lot more. Uh, And the screenplay credits for the movie are shared. They are both credited. Um, but the novel, which was released right after the film, was attributed to Clark alone. And as you said, it is a different thing 
Yeah. It's tough to, to, to it would be tough to do that because it was released after the movie. It was written in, yeah. in parallel with the movie. It's not like, to me. It yeah. has more of a it's vibe closer to a novel of a novelization. Yeah. yeah. Which is not really what we do yeah. here. It is definitely closer to a novelization. I will say it seems it, it's right on that line where yeah. it's almost its own thing to the point where we could do that. But it is it is different enough that I think just going with a short story makes sense. Uh, another some other little fun facts. Hal 9000 was originally named after Athena, uh, who is the hmm. Greek goddess of wisdom uh, and originally had a, a, a feminine voice and persona. But they changed that for the final one into the, the, the Hal 9000 that we all love. Uh, some other changes that Kubrick made over the course of production, because not everything that ended up in the movie was how they planned it originally, uh, include a different monolith for the Dawn of Man sequence. There were early prototypes that were like clear and stuff that they just mm -hmm. didn't like. I think originally at one point it was like a pyramid -y kind of shape. Uh, another point it was like clear, like it looked like it does in the movie, but it was like clear plexi, but the, yeah. the reflected weird and they didn't like how it looked. And then ultimately I think somebody like on the set design was like, what if we just paint it black? <laughs> they were like, <laughs> all right. Um, so yeah, that ult finally ended up on the, on the black monolith that we get in the movie. Uh, uh the Saturn was going to be the final destination of the discovery mission. Uh, but in the movie that we finally get, it's Jupiter, but it was originally going to be Saturn, but they got rid of that because the special effects team couldn't make the rings around Saturn look convincing enough, apparently. Mm. And then the finale uh, with the star child exploding nu nuclear weapons carried by earth, the earth orbiting satellites apparently is different than what happens in the movie versus what they had originally planned. I don't remember. It's been so long since I've seen this movie and I, I don't even know if I've seen it all the way to the end. Um, that I don't remember exactly what happens there, but apparently that ending part was was tweaked from how it was originally planned. Uh, speaking of the Dawn of Man sequences, uh, sequence that opening uh, that involves the apes, uh, the Dawn of Man sequence, uh, it was played. The apes were played by professional mime Daniel Richter, or he was the lead ape, uh, and he also choreographed the movements for all of the other apes who were mostly portrayed by other members of his mime troupe. <laughs> Which I thought was interesting. That that's gonna give me a like yes. uh, you can a nightmare. Absolutely <laughs> tell that they are people. Yeah, but it's just uncanny enough that it's really unsettling from my memory. Mm. Like it looks enough like chimps that it's like weird, but you can also tell it's not. I I I I am not a huge fan of chimps. I'm gonna be honest, and I, yeah. I mimes are on thin ice. <laughs> I just to clarify, I'm saying chimps. They're not chimps. They're prehistoric like right ape man you close know, enough whatever. that's close so enough they're not for chimps, me but they kind of look like chimps is the point yeah uh, another thing that's notable about the film uh famous for its use of classical music throughout the film uh that were actually used and taken from existing commercial recordings apparently in the early stages of production kubrick actually did commission a full traditional theatrical score for the film from composer alex north mm -hmm. uh, who had done spartacus and dr strangelove uh, or at least worked on Dr. Strangelove. But during post-production, Kubrick was like, I don't like, this isn't vibing for me. Uh, and then decided to go with the classical pieces that he had chosen as temporary music before the score. Uh, and apparently uh, Alex North, the composer, did not learn that his score had been abandoned until he saw the film's premiere. That's awful. <laughs> apparently nobody told him, oh, by the oh way, we God. did not use your music. <laughs> no wonder they went over budget. Yeah, got all commissioned an entire commissioned score an entire score use. and then just didn't use it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so 2001 may most be known for its uh, visual effects. Uh, obvious, obviously, is very uh, 
groundbreaking in its use of special effects and all that sort of stuff, especially within the world realm of sci-fi. Uh, there have been entire, countless entire courses and books and movies and documentaries about the effects in this movie, and so I'm not going to be able to even remotely go into everything because it's just too much, and you can go seek that out in your own time if you want to learn <laughs> about that because, again, there's the whole whole freaking uh, co collegiate courses about this movie, uh, about every aspect of this movie. But I did find this one quote that I thought was interesting from Kier Dulia, who is the main character, uh, Dave, I believe. So he said, quote, not one foot of this film was made with computer-generated special effects. Everything you see in this film or saw in this film was done physically or chemically one way or the other, which is what I read from other places, is that everything was basically done in camera in some way or another. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, it's 1968. We're, we're at the very early stages of even considering computer-generated right. graphics and stuff. but. Uh, yes, it, everything was done in camera to some extent um, through d myriad uh, special effects techniques. Um, but yeah, it also doesn't have nearly as many special effects shots as a lot of other films. Like, I believe it, ha it has like 200 and something, like 205 special effects shots. And Star Wars, like the first Star Wars by comparison, had like 600 or something mm -hmm. like that. So even that being said, it's not nearly as much um, going on as. Uh, as some other films around this time, which obviously Star Wars was 10 years after this. But so supposedly at the premiere screening, according to Rock Hudson, who was there, 250 people walked out of the theater. <laughs> One of them was Rock Hudson, who apparently said, quote, will someone tell me what the hell this is about? <laughs> End quote. Um, uh, Arthur C. Clarke uh, apparently also said about of the film one time, quote, if you understand 2001 completely, we failed. We wanted to raise far more questions than we answered. End quote. Boo. <laughs> uh, so another thing people know about this movie is that there's not a lot of dialogue in it. There are roughly 88 dialogue free minutes in this movie. And that includes about 25 minutes at the beginning of the movie. The first mm -hmm. line is uttered 25 minutes into the film. And about 23 minutes at the end of the movie. Uh, so there are huge, vast stretches that do not have any dialogue, uh, totaling up to about 88 total minutes, which I believe the film is two and a half hours or something like that. So, so uh, in interviews at the time of release, Kubrick said that the, quote, zero gravity toilet sign was the only intentional joke in 2001. So if you laugh at anything else, you're not laughing at something that Kubrick wanted you to laugh at. But if you see that zero gravity toilet and you're like, ha that would be funny. Then <laughs> you got the one joke, apparently. <laughs> All right, getting into some reviews. In The New Yorker, Penelope G Gilead said it was, quote, some kind of great film and an unforgettable endeavor. The film is hypnotically entertaining and it is funny without once being gaggy but it is also rather harrowing, end quote. Uh, so apparently she found something other than the zero gravity <laughs> toilet entertaining. But Charles Champlin of the Los Angeles Times uh, wrote, quote, the picture that science fiction fans of every age and in every corner of the world have prayed, sometimes forlornly, that the industry might someday give them. It is an ultimate statement of the science fiction film, an awesome realization of the spatial future. It is a milestone, a landmark for a space mark, in the art of film. Wow. But not everybody loved it. Pauline Kale uh, called the film, quote, a monumentally unimaginative movie, end quote, which is a wild <laughs> review. Like, of all the criticisms, if you want to be like, this movie's boring, I get it. But unimaginative? I don't know. That seems interesting to me. 
Uh, Stanley Kaufman of the New Republic described the film as, quote, a film that is so dull, it even dulls our interest in the technical ingenuity for the sake of which Kubrick has allowed it to become dull, <laughs> end quote. Uh, Soviet film director Andrei Tarkovsky, which we have covered before. Uh, uh, he did. Uh, Solaris. Yes, Solaris. Yes, uh, the director of Solaris uh, found the film to be an inadequate addition to the science fiction genre of filmmaking, <laughs> which I'm sure really ooh, stuck in Kubrick's craw because there's no way he wasn't a huge Tarkovsky head. <laughs> I just don't buy it. Renata Adler of the New York Times wrote that it was, quote, somewhere between hypnotic and immensely boring. I, I feel like that's, that's how I'm going to feel about yes. it. I will say I think that's a fairly accurate um, summation of the movie. Just have a feeling that that's how I'm going to feel I, about I, it. I have a very strong feeling that's how you're going to feel about it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Variety's Robert B. Frederick uh, wrote, quote, the film is big, beautiful, but a plotting sci-fi epic, a major achievement in cinematography and special effects. 2001 lacks dramatic appeal to a large degree and only conveys suspense after the halfway mark. Andrew Saris called it, quote, one of the grimmest films I have ever seen in my life. 2001 is a disaster because it is much too abstract to make its abstract points, end quote. Uh, Saris did go on to reverse this opinion upon a second viewing and later would say, quote, 2001 is indeed a major work by a major artist, end quote. So he, upon mm -hmm. a review, decided mm -hmm. to change his tune a little bit. Uh, John Simon wrote, quote, it is a regrettable failure, although not a total one. This film is fascinating when it concentrates on apes or machines and dreadful when it deals with the in-betweens, humans. 2001, for all its lively visual and mechanical spectacle, is a kind of space Spartacus and, more pretentious still, a shaggy god story. Uh, if you don't know what a shaggy god story is, that is a story where uh, it's kind of like a minor science fiction genre that basically you take a biblical story and, like, explain it through science fiction tropes. Mm -hmm. There are some, there's like a, a famous, um, it's either Outer Limits or, uh, what was the other one? Um, the, the, the Zone. Uh, Why is my brain's? The zone? The, the, you're now entering the... The twilight, twilight zone? zone? Oh, my God. I, my brain, I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought that couldn't possibly no, be what you were trying to come It's been a long time. My brain with. is just... I, I just forgot. Yeah, so the twilight zone. Uh, I think it might be a twilight zone episode where it's like um, so, some space explorers crash land on this planet, and then they... But it's like a... It's like a um a really like beautiful like yeah jungle or whatever and they start like creating like a society and stuff and then at the end it's revealed that their names are adam and eve and it's uh, so like yeah, it's yeah, that yeah. kind of thing where you like take a, a biblical story mm -hmm. and turn it into like a, a sci-fi story basically and it's called a shaggy god story uh and then finally uh historian arthur m schlesinger jr deemed the film quote morally pretentious intellectually obscure and inordinately long a film out of control, end quote, which is an amazing <laughs> review. I love that a lot. Uh, oh, I would have put that on the poster. A film out of a control. A film out of yes. control. Uh, and then actually, finally, Roger Ebert gave the film four stars uh, out of four, which if you don't know, that's maybe four stars. So four stars out of four in his original review saying that the film, quote, succeeds magnificently on a cosmic scale. Uh, he would go on to put the film uh, in, on his top 10 list for sight and sound, uh, which is one of the publications he wrote for. So he was a huge fan of the film. 
That's going to do it for this episode. Uh, we wanted to remind you that you can do us a giant favor by heading over to patreon.com slash this film is lit. Support us there. Give us feedback, all that good stuff. Also, head over to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Goodreads. Just search for this film is lit. You'll find us uh, and uh, leave us some feedback. Talk to us. We want to hear what you have to say, we, like we did in this episode. We'll, we'll talk about what you had to say about whatever movie we talk about. Tons of fun. Go do all that stuff. Katie, where can people watch 2001? Um, well, you can check with your local library. Definitely like, they would have Probably it. a good yes. chance they're going to have this, <laughs> this one. This is a Criterion collection, yes. I'm sure. So. Um, or a, a local video rental store if you still have one of those. Um, how much longer can I keep saying that? I feel like not much longer. We haven't had one. <laughs> we had one when we, we started did. this we podcast. We had one when we started this podcast. But it's been now a couple we don't. years since we um, did. <laughs> it, is, it is a weed shop now. Yes. <laughs> Um, you can also stream this with a subscription to HBO Max, mm-hmm. or you can rent it for around three to four bucks from Apple TV, Amazon, YouTube, Vudu, Redbox, DirecTV, AMC Theaters On Demand, or Spectrum TV. There you go. Uh, I know you're not super excited about this, but I am. Um, mainly, I, I'm not even sure I'm going to like it or love it. I, I'm just actually excited to finally watch it for real. <laughs> I'll be honest. I genuinely have no idea what this movie's about. Yeah, it's not really about it. I know. Well, sorry, I know, true, like but... some of the, like some of the things yeah. that are in it. I have no idea what this movie's about. I, so I, 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 I guess I'm excited to know what it's about. Spoilers is not really about anything. I mean, it is. It's about lots of things, but it's not like there's not like a narrative. <laughs> I mean, there is kind of, but, but it's it's morally pretentious and and what did he say? Intellectually uh, something. Yeah. It's a film, out of control. a film out of control. I don't remember. I closed my notes already, so I don't remember what that <laughs> quote was. But yeah, I I think I'm gonna like it. Uh, I will say that I, I I like I said I'm mainly just looking forward to watching it to to finally like watch it as an adult. And mm-hmm. like see what I think of it because again I only saw this as a young person and thought it was immensely boring because <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's a three hour long movie where there's 88 minutes where nobody says anything and it's just like people yeah, yeah. Like, but I, I am much more <laughs> sympathetic to stuff experiences like that now in film than I remotely was at the time so I, I like I said if I had to guess I bet I will enjoy it but I, I don't know I could be wrong I, I might find it pretentious because I sometimes <laughs> do find some pretentious uh, uh, yeah so we shall see come back in one week's time we're talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey until that time guys gals on Binary Pals everybody else keep reading books watching movies and, and keep, keep being, being awesome, awesome.